Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about First Baptist Church of Silva, please visit firstbaptistsilva.com. You can almost imagine Jesus enjoying himself in this moment. (laughs) You know, scaring the disciples the way that he did and rest assured he scared them. In fact, I would say spooked them, but then that would suggest that Jesus was a ghost. And he's very clear that the resurrected Jesus is not a ghoul or a ghost. No, it's Jesus in the flesh. Look, he's going to show us his wounds. For us, the day of resurrection is a day of celebration. But biblically, that's not the case. If you lean in closely, you find that the day of resurrection was a day of confusion and terror. Where is Jesus? Who are these people? There's rumors. There's gossip. There's, I saw him. No, that can't be true. There's giving up and hiding. Why? Because they don't know what's going to happen next. And then suddenly, Jesus breaks into where they are and nabs their attention. Apparently, doors, like stones and tombs that have been sealed up, they cannot stop Jesus. It's funny, isn't it? Jesus always seems to show up when we don't expect him. And we find ourselves surprised. Now, I'm not an officer, but y'all, when I read this story, I can't help but to come to the conclusion that this is an unauthorized entry. Jesus does not, pull, not knock politely on the door. He's not already there. He literally breaks in and appears, which is ironic, isn't it? That Jesus has to break into the house to send the inhabitants out of it. Jesus breaks in to get his followers' attention. And the message that Jesus has for them is an externally focused message. Jesus doesn't tell them about how they should decorate the interior of the home. He doesn't tell them about how they are to be constructed or even to come up with a kind of work of the disciples kind of plan. No, Jesus is clear that they need to get out of the house. They need to get busy outside. I find it curious to consider what Jesus could and maybe even should have done in this moment. Because Jesus, the resurrected Lord, could have easily gone in another direction here. God has a history of going in different directions when plan A doesn't work out. Let's think of all the plan A's, shall we? There was creation and Adam and Eve. It was a good plan. God had created this utopia for Adam and Eve, his creation. He would walk in the cool of the morning and evening with them. Everything that they could always have wanted was right there. And his creation screwed it up. So then there's plan B. Plan B, of course, is a very different way to birth humanity. Because God wanted to enjoy his people. But it's hard to enjoy 
his people when they are as evil as they were. Read your Bible, y'all. God has enough of his creation after a period of time and sends a flood. And we know that story. But again, there's a pattern here. God has good intentions for his creation. And increasingly, creation disappoints the creator. There was King Saul, who very quickly disappoints God. And God anoints and raises up another king, King David. And that doesn't turn out so well either. And when read from a balcony vantage point where we can zoom out and see God's relationship with God's people, we see over and over again that God has high hopes for his people. And they continue to disappoint him. And yet, ever the father with prodigals, God makes it clear that he is not going to give up on us. But maybe Jesus should have. I mean, think about it, y'all. The disciples certainly disappointed Jesus. I mean, three years with the Son of God. And the best they can do when things get hard is run and hide because that's certainly what they did. They think that they are on the cusp of a messianic future that would reign with a sword Let's assemble an army. Let's take Rome by force. But messiahs are not strung up on a tree. What kind of world is this, they wondered, and so they hid in fear for the Jews. So yeah, I think that Jesus could have gone in a different direction. He could have chosen not to show up at all, right? I mean, when people disappoint us, we ghost them, no pun intended, to the resurrected Lord. But that's what happens. When people hurt us, when they desert us, we move on. Perhaps Jesus should have too. But he doesn't. And <laughs> He seems to have a little bit of fun with it. Showing up just like that in their midst. Scaring them. A collective, faithful boo. Peace be with you, he says. Y'all, this isn't a throwaway line. I know it's become so familiar to us that we extend it every Sunday morning to one another. Peace be with you. But it's not something... That Jesus takes lightly. In fact, it's mentioned twice. Those students of the Bible know that when things are mentioned twice in close proximity, it means that the author doesn't want the reader or the listener to forget it. It's important. Peace be with you, Jesus tells them. It's an important moment because historically, leaders who have deputies that turn their back on them are summarily executed and killed. That's what history teaches us should be done here. Jesus shows back up, he is victorious, and now he's got some payback for those who deserted him, that denied him, that hid while he died. 
Do y'all remember Reader's Digest? I love Reader's Digest. I was introduced to Reader's Digest at my grandmother's house in Wilkesboro, Big Mama and Papa. I love to visit them. They always kept the air conditioning way too low. It just felt special, especially in contrast to my parents that were stingy. So it was hot, but you'd come inside and it was cold. They had cable TV. My grandmother would make strawberry toast mixing together the strawberry jam and the butter. And they had Reader's Digest. And in a world before iPhones, it was the way to kill time very easily. And I won't and don't have to tell you what rooms of the house had the Reader's Digest. But I found something this past week that would have been perfect fodder for Reader's Digest. It was an article about ways that we can live into our best practices, right? That we can be mindful of bad habits that we have, um, have worked out of and from. And one bad habit that this author and article lifts up is that it's hard to forget when friends or coworkers or family members disappoint you or let you down. It's hard to let go of that. We hold on to those moments, and in fact, we like to replay them guilty as charged. And yet, the article that reads like it came right out of Reader's Digest challenges this idea and says, instead, express and embrace gratitude for those who do show up. I like that. That instead of holding grudges and being mindful of those that deserted us or let us down or hurt us in the past, instead we should embrace and be aware of those that come through. I mean, talk about time well spent, of good energy, right? Of focusing on those that do show up, that are present, that are engaged I mean, y'all, that's what Jesus did. Instead of keeping track of who lets us down, Jesus demonstrates how he focused on who comes through. On the day when Jesus was raised from the dead, to whom does he appear first? Those who did not desert him. The women. The women who were there all along. The women who didn't give up, the women who didn't run and hide, the women who are there on the road, those who are there at the cross, those who helped to bury him, and those who come back to take care of his body. So no, I'm not at all surprised that Jesus would lean into that moment when the dew is still wet, when the sun is still rising, when he is still stretching out his new resurrection threads, who does he smile at? Who does he appear to? It's the women. It's worth saying, however, if Jesus is ticked off about his closest friends deserting him, he doesn't seem to show it. It's almost as though He loves these followers, imperfect though they may be. When faced with the opportunity of starting over with new disciples, Jesus can't let go of them. 
It's like he loves them. Now, Jesus is not vindictive. He offers them shalom. He genuinely wants for them wholeness and wellness. Peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give to you. I don't give it to you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled and do not let them be afraid. We find in this moment that it's wellness that's what's needed for the disciples to receive the commissioning that Jesus has for them. Because Jesus, in this moment of resurrection and reappearance, desires reconciliation. And reconciliation leads to commissioning. Now, on this side of the tomb, we are not disqualified for what happened on the other side of this tomb. Jesus is not going to be content with us being locked in our churches or in our upper rooms, hiding in fear or having given up that things didn't work out the way they did. No, Jesus will find us because there's work to be done. We remember, of course, that apostle, the word in Greek means to be sent out. And Jesus shows up, offers peace, and prepares to send them out. So yes, Jesus comes back for his disciples and to proclaim reconciliation and to proclaim peace. But that's not all. You lean in closely and you'll find that there's a secondary commissioning. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. It is a secondary commissioning. And I had to spend a few moments trying to determine what Jesus was getting at here. It's actually an old Jewish reference to a judge who is empowered with the ability to either unbind someone of their, their chains that hold them or to keep them on. Jesus here is referring to authority, the ability to either let loose the captives or to keep them captive. It's Jesus' disciples here that he's authorizing to do what he himself had come to do. It's about reconciliation. And this new authorization is echoed in Luke's account of Jesus on this side of the tomb. He says, repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So we find that Jesus' marching orders to his followers is to go out and to be reconcilers of those who are prodigals. And so if we are to go out and to tell the good news of a father who is eagerly awaiting the prodigals, then we need to make certain that we lift up what it looks like and feels like to have a God who loves us so much that God will run to us, show up in our locked homes, find us when we've given up on him because he loves us. When Jesus had said all this, he breathes on them. <laughs> Holy halitosis, Batman, this is an odd detail. Until, of course, we remember that it's the Holy Spirit that 
breathes life into dust. That empowers and gives life that's transformative. This moment is unique to John as Jesus directly gives the gift of the Holy Spirit to these followers that he probably should have abandoned. But what's the old hymn? Breathe on me, breath of God. Breathe on me, breath of God. Fill me with life anew that I may love the way you love and do what you would do. That's the good news of the gospel, y'all. That with God's presence in our locked away lives, holding and harboring all kinds of regrets and histories that we like to press like old bruises on our arms, God comes to us and breathes on us, transforming us so that we might love as he loves and that we might do as Jesus does. No, not everyone was there when Jesus showed up. And not everyone is here as was with us last Sunday. Look around, y'all. They don't call it Low Sunday for nothing. Yes, Low Sunday's been around a whole lot longer than just what happens at the First Baptist Church of Silva. Low Sunday, there are two of them. Can you guess which ones? It's the Sunday after Easter and the Sunday after Christmas. And apparently it was low Sunday for the disciples. Even in that room, one wasn't there. Thomas. When he did show back up, he found out that he had been left out. There were things he didn't know. There were things that he had not been privy to. And you can't blame him, can he? Can you? He didn't believe it. He hadn't seen it. He didn't dare to believe what God was doing. Who could? But it was important to Jesus that no one be left out. So what does Jesus do? He comes back. Jesus comes back. Just as the shepherd comes back for that one that was lost, that one that was forgotten. Jesus comes back just as the father wouldn't give up on the prodigal. Jesus comes back. And it becomes real to Thomas. You know what? You may be done with Jesus. You may. And God forgive me for saying so, but that's okay. If you feel like you have moved on from Jesus, perhaps moved on from his disciples and brothers and sisters in his name, you're not the first and you certainly won't be the last. For I suspect if we're really honest and real with one another, there have been times in our own lives where we've been done with Jesus. Whether in thought or in deed. For any number of reasons, 
you may be done with Jesus. But Jesus is not done with you. So what do you do when Jesus breaks into your home? Well, you listen to him. And you do what he tells you to do because he loves you. And that's never changed. Let us pray. God, we are astounded by your pursuit of us. This new covenant that you make with us is breathtaking. Because you could have done so many other things. You could have invested in so many other people. But God, in the breathtaking moments of your glory and of your steadfast love, you give us new breath. We ask again, God, that you don't give up on us, that you show up, that you startle us, that you're still there with us, and that you give us what we need to love like you and to reconcile as you reconcile. For without you, God, we don't have breath in our body. So it's in your name the name of the reconciler, that we pray these things. Amen.